0: It's an uh, enormous pleasure to uh, introduce Todd Green Tree because um, he's part of the fabric of the Changing of War program. Um, he's what we've categorised as a research associate um, on the program. Has served as a political military officer uh, in no less than five conflicts, uh, including um, places like El Salvador, uh, Nepal, um, and Angola. He's also served uh, in Brazil and Papua New Guinea, um, where and also. Most importantly, and we're going to hear about today, um, in Regional Command South uh, in, in Afghanistan, uh, where he was the director of the Initiatives Group. Um, he's also worked, of course, in Washington, D.C. I'm not sure there's much um, insurgency going on there, though I could be wrong about that. That's a real um, danger post. Absolutely. Um, and he's also uh, taught uh, as Professor of Strategy and Policy at the U.S. Naval War College, and has been a visiting scholar uh, in the Merrill Center for Strategic Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Um, which is fantastic. His publications have included, I don't have the dates for these, so I apologise if I haven't put the dates and when you did them, but um, Crossroads of Intervention, Insurgency and Counterinsurgency, Lessons from Central America, uh, and The United States and the Politics of Conflict in the Developing World. Um, an article which is about to come out, I think it's about to come out, in the Journalist Studies. it's not out yet, is it? No. Um, is called Bureaucracy Does Its Thing in Afghanistan, and the CCW team have had the pleasure of being able to read that, uh, and assist with it. Um, his current doctoral uh, dissertation is on the uh, Reagan Doctrine Wars uh, in uh, Central America, Angola, and Afghanistan. So there are a few people better qualified to give that civil-military uh, perspective um, on what's going on or has happened in southern Afghanistan. Todd, thank you very much indeed for agreeing to speak. Thank you,
1: Rob. Um, and I just want to, for colleagues who know me, uh, the, the, the lovely red coat belongs to my wife, who's come from Rome. Um, and I'll just point out that she has actually uh, experienced more wars quantitatively than, than I have in her, in her career with the UN and the International Red Cross. Um, please forgive the use of we. It's been pointed out to me that I, that I use we. Um, what I mean is not the royal academic we. <laughs> But it's 30 years of, of serving as a, uh, in the U.S. government, and it's really hard to refer to something you've been belonged to for so long yeah. as they. So that's that's what I'm talking about. Sometimes including the coalition partners. Um, the the story that I'm going to tell, and I'll get to it in at the in the back half of the of the talk, uh, is about how we cracked the code. Uh, in uh, southern Afghanistan during 2010 and 11, um, and I'll, I will explain that. But first I'm going to give some context to, to the uh, operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan uh, and enumerate what I see as some fundamental strategic problems with, with that uh, from the very beginning. Um, I'll also give a net assessment of the, of the antagonists in, in the war there, um, talk about the nature of the war um, and uh, really the, the center theme that you're going to see woven all through it is why um, political and military action integrated and unified is essential for success in conflicts like this. Um, the Keep your ears open. They're out there in no particular order or sort of what I come up with as eight propositions of Uh, that lead to to an idea that I'm sort of uh, working on now called strategic sufficiency. Um, And and basically what it boils down to is what do you have to do to get the job done? So it's not a legal, formal definition like we heard last last week from Yanina Dill, um, uh, that there'll be eight of those. Uh, The story is not particularly great when you're talking about (coughs) Afghanistan, nor is it the first time that the United States has experienced most of the problems that have come up. Um, we're not very good at protracted interventions. Um, but here's what I'm not saying. Afghanistan is not the graveyard of empires. That's a myth. Um, it is the graveyard of the ambitions of empires. That's for sure. Um, it's not, I'm not talking about the nature of Afghanistan or Afghans, either. Really, what, what I'm talking about is is us, and and by us I mean the U.S. and and the coalition partners. Um, I'm not saying that Afghanistan is a complete failure; that the basic goals, uh, you know, as President Obama likes to say, you know, choose your deed, degrade, dismantle, disrupt, defeat Al Qaeda. Those have those have fundamentally been achieved, um, or that there hasn't been enormous and significant progress in Afghanistan. So. Bottom bottom line, if you're looking for a a contemporary prognosis, it's, well, we're probably going to end up muddling through. It's it's not going to to look like a a defeat. Um, But the cost, the duration, um, were excessive, unnecessary, and unjustified. And we should have done better and we should have known what to do from the beginning. Um, Let me start with a couple parallels. Um, There have been other situations in which the United States, uh, with associated allies, has gotten involved uh, in wars that were set, the conditions for those wars were set by unsatisfactory termination of the prior wars. Fairly common strategic situation. Um, in which there, the wars began with a surprise attack that resulted in national mobilization and significant military commitment. Um, and that the, the, the shock of surprise attack reversed deep, deep resistance to becoming involved militarily. Um, and of course, I'm talking about World War II. Um, Looking at it from, from another position, it's not the first war in which we were compelled, we felt ourselves compelled to play to our strengths, which were to out-resource and out-fight on the ground, out-fight our identified adversary. And then when, when we realized that we had not figured out how to defeat an insurgency, we looked for negotiations and sought an exit. And that, of course, the precedent for that, the big one, is Vietnam. Um, Now that we've gone into a a fairly consolidated phase of drawdown in Afghanistan, um, we're also repeating something that happened after Vietnam, which was a complete withdrawal, a complete resistance to intervention whatsoever. Um, And that that reluctance uh, is causing... Uh, is causing uh, what I think of as numerous consequences that are happening right now. Um, so, if you go back to the, to the to supporting the mujahideen for the Soviets uh, to fight the Soviets in the 1980s, we turned our back. We turned a blind eye to Pakistan's acquisition of nuclear weapons. Immediately after, not only did, after the Soviets pulled out, not only did we abandon the Taliban, which that led down the, uh, did we abandon the mujahideen, which led the track. To the, to the Mujahideen getting to power and ultimately down to 9-11. We also reversed our position to Pakistan, slapped nuclear sanctions on them, and it was at that point that they began to proliferate in a serious way, uh, including their one of their primary proliferation partners was Iran. Here we are today. Um, other consequences as a result of Iraq and Afghanistan in this phase, I, I believe that The the perceived failure of U.S. leadership and liberal democracy in Iraq and Afghanistan have encouraged Islamic extremism and have contributed materially, although very difficult to put your finger tangibly on how that works, have contributed to the instability of the Arab Spring. Add to that now our unwillingness to to commit, to have a standoff approach to conflicts that do erupt, and we are definitely in a down cycle. That's why this stuff matters. Um, All right, now turning to Afghanistan. The um, Afghan, what what I call the the Afghanistan elephant syndrome, you know, the story of the blind man and the elephant. I don't think I've ever met a commander or an ambassador or anybody in a senior leadership position that had not said, well, if they'd only done it my way when I was in charge, and then da 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 And you get a lot of good stuff. But it's, the idea is that Afghanistan would have come out right during my time. Um, so uh, this is my piece of, of the Afghan elephant. Um, and, and if there's one fundamental that difference i like to point to that, that when I get to the story about, uh, about what we did in the South... The difference was is that we listened to the Afghans and we tried to do what they said we should be doing rather than focusing on us telling them what to do. Um, Problems. The first big one is we kept changing. Just between 2009 and today, we went from sort of a half-hearted, heavy-handed, semi-counterinsurgency effort to reassessing, reassessing, not a bad thing, but boom, big coin. Comprehensive counterinsurgency, fully resourced, or at least in principle, fully resourced and open-ended, that was going to go on, um, to, oops, again, now we're in drawdown and handing over to the Afghans. And, oh, by the way, oops, I, I never get over this. Whatever we were doing at the moment was always good for the Afghans. And they just had to get on with what it was we wanted them to do. And that's where all, this, uh, all a lot of the friction came out. Um, from their perspective, though, it's been over a generation of war, of anarchy, of extremism, and that's lasted since the communist coup in 1978, Soviets invaded in 79. So it's it's pretty much unbroken. Um, But it's really not about those combative Afghans. Yes, they are warlike people, and if you want to learn more, read Rob's book, The Afghan Way of War. It's all all laid out there in in great detail and and with a lot of insight. Um, But a critical part of this is is not those Afghans. It's Afghans at the intersection of the, the, the world outside. Afghanistan has always been an intersection of empires for millennia. You've got your Mongols, you've got your Moguls, you've got your Persians, you've got your Greeks, you've got your British, you've got your Soviets. Now you've got us. So what we do and what we don't do has a fundamental impact on what happens there. Um, To just sort of, just to to capture a more... A historical perspective on what Afghan looks like, what the, what the situation feels like. Um, I'm going to quote my favorite quote from Thucydides. Can't get through a talk like this without quoting <coughs> Thucydides or of Wetsfield. So, the sufferings which the revolution entailed were many and terrible, such as always occurred and always will occur as long as human nature remains the same. In peace and prosperity, states and individuals have better sentiments because they are not confronted with imperious necessities. But war takes away the easy supply of daily wants and proves a rough master that reduces most men's characters to the levels of their fortunes. And I think that that Sort of, if you, you know, the whole time was in in Afghanistan. I held that as as my mantra in dealing with these, uh, in dealing with these situations. Um, so we started out okay in two thousand one. Overthrow, boom, set up the government with a bond conference, um, and then the United States basically turned its back. Got real small. Uh, we were mopping up, as Donald Rumsfeld called it. This was sort of the roots of counter terrorist action. You know, running around with in trucks at night, guys with guns doing stuff that's still going on. Um, and, uh, and we sure as heck weren't going to do that wimpy nation-building stuff. So um, that's a problem. The, um the core of it is that in focusing on military action, we over-militarized. Even though everybody says, oh, counterinsurgency, 80% political, 20% military, same thing has happened in Vietnam. It was the military that that pretty much ran the show, has continued to run the show, not least because only (coughs) civilians had, civilians simply did not have the capacity or the orientation to do it. Um, So my first proposition, remember I said there were eight, first proposition is absolute number one requirement, is to understand the nature of the war that you're involved in, and conceive of your aims accordingly, without trying to change it into something it's not. It's right out of Clausewitz. Um, we never did get that right. Never did get the strategy, the fundamental strategy and policy of Afghanistan right. Um, and. Uh, <clears throat> Part of that becomes is because we were focusing on the negative aims of defeating the Al Qaeda and then defeating the Taliban. Our positive aims were these wildly ambitious, transforming Afghanistan into a democracy and a developed country and all that. I mean, not going to happen. It was never going to happen. I, I, anybody sitting from the outside looking objectively would see that that was a bridge too far, um, which. Which leads to me to the question of, well, what was, a, what was a realistic positive aim? I think it can be produced to build a stable order. That was what our aim should have been, Something at, at some much more minimal level. Second proposition, strategic sufficiency requires balancing both positive and negative aims. That leads to my third proposition, which is every war must end. Right, Afghanistan, since 1978... Has been at war in one way or other. But everyone needs to end, and the way it ends is the most important thing about a war. How it ends is the most important thing. So Afghans ha- are in a war that has yet to end. Our involvement in this war is for the second time. Um, and from their perspective, and I'm speaking, I'm not speaking for every individual Afghan and all that, but in general, right, for them, this golden time, as I've heard them call it many times, is coming to an end. And their fear, their deepest fear, is that our drawdown is going to lead to abandonment, and that's going to lead to a situation that in Islam is called fitna, which means disorder. And and that is the thing that they fear the most, to return to disorder. Um, There is a core strategic dynamic about Afghanistan, um, about how wars actually end there. Um, And it's not military defeat. That's not the model. And I'm going to quote from Tom Barfield. Some of you may know his book, Afghanistan, A Cultural and Political History, which is, if somebody asks me what's the one thing to read about Afghanistan, that's it. Barfield says, the way a war ends, being labeled a winner or a loser is a self-fulfilling prophecy. What brings about (coughs) such shifts is a change in the political calculations of decision-makers in each region of Afghanistan. Such reappraisals are based on empirical evidence about whether a defender can successfully maintain the core foundation of his power base. That's how wars end in Afghanistan. So question to, to ponder. Who decides when a war is over? The winner or the loser? How many people say winner? Anybody? How many people say loser? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. So now reflect. When President Obama says war is winding down, what is he saying? He's not saying the war is coming to an end, that we have successfully terminated this war, right? He's saying we're getting out. So... and. The, the point is that in exit strategy, you know, stay tuned next week, an exit is not the same thing as terminating, as ending a war, and there's a fundamental difference there. Um, that's why, my opinion, this whole business about negotiating power sharing with the Taliban, the strategic dynamics are wrong. If you're the loser... What incentive does, right, this is classic strategy, what, what incentive does the, does the the person who is on top have to actually get in and negotiate? Um, okay, a few more problems. Uh, it's not just that we took our eye off the ball and went to Iraq. John Paul Van famously said about Vietnam that we've been fighting for 12 years, one year at a time. So, Groundhog Day Syndrome. Um, an attitude that says don't look back don't look back we got to keep going we don't care about what happened we got to you know we're faced with this now means that when we did the surge and introduced bitcoin in 2009 there was no recognition whatsoever that, that that the primary reason for the need to introduce all that stuff were all the errors that we'd made consecutively and cumulatively since 2001 um at bond where the, where the government was structured. We acquiesced in the creation of a hyper-centralized state, essentially making, we call him President Karzai, but he's in effect a monarch, right? Exactly, precisely, probably the worst form of government, the last structure of government that, that, a, that a country like Afghanistan needed. Um, and it looked good at the start, but our attempt to, to supplant this hypercentralized system and create a constitutional electoral democracy had no, no basis. There was no, no substantial number of elite groups, for example, that were prepared to, to do anything remotely like that, especially not in the short term. On the security side, we never had enough troops in there. And even more importantly, we didn't focus seriously on building the Afghan security forces. Now, how could you miss something like that? The Taliban were down. They were thrown out. They'd fled. They'd laid their arms down in 2001, 2002, 2003. That was the time we be building security forces. Not now. Um, We helped our our counterterrorism focus, the model that we followed was precisely what created the current generation of warlords. The very people that we identify as the source of corruption are people that we introduced in the earlier days. Um, on top of that, we broke trust with our cho- uh, the person that we had, we had joined in choosing as president, with Karzai. We broke trust with him from the very, very start. It's not that he's crazy and idiosyncratic, I'm amazed his head hasn't exploded with all the contradictions that he's, he's been faced with. Um, okay, 2006, fast forward to, to, um, to the surge, or to the, to the recognition that the insurgency had, had surged. And, and rather than a surge, I mean, really it was a slow evolution, but the recognition of it really hit home in 2006. Um, it then took several years... For the political systems, the various political systems of, of the international coalition, to gear up to deliver troops in the end uh, to to raise raise the force level. Um, that was the right; it was probably the right thing to do, um, because I mean it did lead it did lead to getting enough uh, to getting sufficient number of troops in the ground when the situation was critical. But at the same time, reducing firepower. Um, paying attention to protecting the population as well as, as chasing the enemy. Um, I say uh, some of the fundamental assumptions of coin, though, are, are pretty much uh, unproven assumptions, uh, which the top one would be pumping billions more dollars into one of the you know, five poorest countries in the world. Maybe, maybe not the wisest thing to do. Um, coin itself, counterinsurgency itself, it was as if this was some big inspiration. Um, hang on. This is all stuff from Vietnam. There's nothing really new in it. The, and the real problem is, is that it was too late. Um, the, the debate over the surge, this strategic reassessment, um, was basically, in Washington, reduced to troop numbers just one factor in in this strategic sufficiency but that's what the talk was but the worst the worst violation i think the the one that really that really puts it all together um uh is if you take t.e lawrence the 27 articles um, the one that really matters article 15 and and we violated that in space. so i'm going to read it but i'm pulling out arab the word arabs and putting in afghans do not try to do too much with your own hands Better the Afghans do it tolerably than you do it perfectly. It is their war, and you are to help them, not to win it for them. Actually, also, under the very odd conditions of Afghanistan, your practical work will not be as good as perhaps you think it is. Um, Proposition number four, keep it small, use your resources wisely. Timing is critical. I suspect that if you are faced with a situation of doing Bitcoin, it's too late. Um, The strategic problem, the central strategic problem, same same as as Henry Kissinger and, and Richard Nixon faced in Vietnam, is how do you achieve strategic success when you... And everybody else knows that your level of effort and the duration are declining. So you will see everything has to be put in terms of success because you don't want to to walk away with a defeat. But that is is the central challenge. Um, So proposition number five. The side that wins in an internal conflict of this nature, is the one that more competently captures political legitimacy and authority. By authority, I mean the ability to to uh, lead and be followed or to command and be obeyed. And by legitimacy, it means the, the belief, the popular belief, that that, that you have the right to do that. You have the right to command and the right to lead. That's those are the what what your core strategic goals should should revolve around. Um, which means that that this stuff, you know, the people as the center of gravity, uh, winning hearts and minds, uh, bro- you know, answering grievances, connecting people to the government, um, really are all they're, they're too simplistic. They're simplistic notions that there's some amorphous popular popular source of, of strength out there um, that, that is not ever going to get us there. Uh, all right <clears throat> going turning now to southern Afghanistan and the campaign sort of where how this all gets operationalized um, we're talking uh, there, there are four regional commands uh, there were uh, we added, we added one here in Helmand when the Marines came in, but southern Afghanistan is the Pashtun heartland. It consists of Helmand, Uruzgan, Kandahar, Zabul. Those are the the core provinces. Um, That's where the Pashtun population has its origin. There are also uh, large numbers of uh, eastern Pashtuns that these are the guys that live in the hills uh, over here. Uh, So that's what we're talking about, mostly this this part of the country, though. it is, uh, it is desert, I mean, like the most desolate desert you can imagine, and the most desolate, driest mountains you can imagine. Uh, it's got rivers through it, and the life is like, humanity is like slivers along the rivers. And by the way, all of these rivers don't exit in the sea, they disappear in the sands. Um, the center is Kandahar City. There, Kandahar City, um, named after Alexander Iskandar, Alexander the Great. Founded the city. It's a crossroads of the Southern Silk Route, where it meets a northern intersection and finds its route to the sea, uh, which is now the port of Karachi. So the the supply routes that the coalition relies on are exactly the same as they were thousands thousands of years ago. Um, all right. Let me let me do a quick net assessment of what's out there. Until 52 Stryker Brigade uh, arrived in Afghanistan in the summer of 2009, uh, this area, which was the main the main source of the insurgency, was held by a single Canadian battle group, with associated Australian, um, Dutch, uh, Romanian. Uh, contingents, and then the British in Helmand. And putting the Canadians into Kandahar was kind of like saying, okay, you guys go do Omaha Beach. They were really, I mean, they did a great job, um, but, but that was, you know, uh, not, I don't think a lot of strategic thought went into, went into that. Um, uh, as 10th Mountain Division, the, that was the, the American division I was with when they were there, took over command, um, in November of 2010, the surge was at its peak. Surge had reached its peak. The main effort, Stan, General Stanley McChrystal, the I S A F commander, had designated it as the main effort. So we had the main call and resources. Correct decision. Um, so uh, the problem, the big problem, was the bulk of surge forces were Marines. Twenty thousand out of a total of 30. 35,000, depending on how you count the surge, but twenty thousand plus went into this one district, Helmand Province. Were there with the Brits, um, and you know I don't care how great your coin is there, it's three percent of the population of Afghanistan, and the main and the main center was here in Kandahar. Um, okay, even so. That the, the effect of the surge, the effect of having that number of troops operationally <coughs> on the ground, was to reverse the tide of the rising insurgency. No question that that, that, that happened. Um, all right. So let's turn to the, to the insurgency. What we're, you know, we've got a factionalized insurgency generally referred to as the Taliban. Um, uh, here it's the Quetta Shura Taliban. Quetta because that's where they took refuge in in Pakistan, headed by Mullah Omar, who was the emir during the government, um, and their headquarters was in Kandahar City. He never went to Kabul. It was here. So that's, that's why, from my perspective, and the basis of our operational assessment for political-military strategy was that the, the center of gravity, in the Clausewitzian sense, the hub of power for the insurgency, was Kandahar. And if you secured Kandahar and the surrounding districts, Kandahar City and the surrounding districts, then you would render the only faction of the insurgency that represents national aspirations, you would render that feudal, And that's your key to dismantling the Taliban, not running around in the hills, banging away at, at every little tribe in every little valley, you're never, ever, ever going to get there. You have to approach it here first and then move out from there. Anyway, that was the, the basic idea. Um, the Taliban had something that I believe is essential. Proposition number six, you've got to have a str- compelling strategic narrative. This is from Emile Simpson's book, uh, war and war from the ground up if you haven't re- seen it, it's really terrific so, uh, strategic narrative uh, it's a stable unifying vision that sustains your cause that's all it is it's not information operations it's not lines of effort, it's not all this other coin stuff it's, it's, it's the vision that you have, for the Taliban um, it's jihad it's, it's religious war um, and jihadis are expressive warriors. Jihad is forever, so there is a cause around which they will fight that is re- is not entirely independent, but it doesn't depend on the desire to seize power in the state of the state. It's more than a, it's more than just a desire to seize power for the state. Um, okay, so turning to how we went about it. Um, the, uh, we put together a small team in the initi- in the initiatives group that reported directly to the to the division commander in, in regional command south. Um, we brought in a few people. For example, Tom Barfield came for a couple weeks, and and he's I mean he's a great political thinker, very entertaining, and he you know he talked to the to the command group and that sort of thing. Um, uh, we and we wrote basically an integrated political military plan. So we had a campaign plan that had a military component and an integrated political component. It had never been done before, so people didn't quite know how to deal with the animal, but since we had the, the commander on board, it was it went very smoothly. Um, the, on the military side, used combat power to, to secure Kandahar City and the surrounding districts, and, and we found in the process that it takes about two years to complete that clear-hold-build cycle to really stabilize it, that job was never finished. The surge was over before that job was finished. Um, we synchronized with special operations forces. I think that was a major advance. So instead of having special operations doing targeted kill-capture against, against leaders independent from what your, main, what your main groups were doing, which would mean that you'd have operations taking out leaders, but you didn't have anybody securing an area. And since the replacement time averaged about six weeks, by the time you got there, if you hadn't synchronized, boom, Taliban's back in like that, no problem. So synchronizing those was very important. Um, Gave uh, Afghanistan security force partnering top priority. In other words, rather than handing it off to the National Guard and having things like majors mentor general officers. That really is the model that that we're following. The seniors mentored the seniors. That was the number one part. And then it flowed down from there rather than working the the bottom up. Um, And and gave uh, equal attention to the police and integrated, rather than just using them as paramilitary auxiliaries uh, and then letting them run their corrupt mafia operations on the side, integrated them. So, that the army would operate, the Afghan army would operate jointly uh, forward, and then the police would be responsible for securing areas uh, that were specially designated for for them. So, proposition number seven force levels and force employment are equally important. Gotta pay attention to both of those as you put it together. all right, political side. I'm not talking here about if you've if you've been you know if you've followed the news on Afghanistan about governance, rule of law, about creating you know a government bureaucracy that deals that delivers services, um, about elections, about about anti-corruption, um, any of that stuff. Um, what we did was we took advantage of a formal decision that, that General McChrystal made in 2010 to stop chasing Ahmed Wali Karzai, the, the president's brother who was the, the godfather. The, I thought of him as the kingpin of Kandahar. He really was the second most powerful person in the country who had everything in his hands. The fact that he was also a criminal genius who, who, you know, in deeply involved in the family business. Remember, the number one cash crop here is opium. Um, having only the CIA and the special forces deal with him to help hire militias and rent property was involving the person who was literally the kingpin of the whole of the center of gravity of the country in about that much sliver of what matters. So instead of, instead of going in and delivering red lines and trying to dictate to the president's brother what he could and could not do, I mean, what, what did we think we were trying to get, do there? Um, uh, we started talking to him and to, uh, to a whole series of people uh, throughout these, these four, primarily in these four provinces. And we listened to them, they were extremely sophisticated. And they understood what needed to be. They understood what needed to be done. The core of it was um, uh, a four-day session that that the small team of ours held with a group of leaders in the in the governor's palace in Kandahar. And we literally sat there and wrote this document called "Peace in Southern Afghanistan." It was based around the concept of Loy Kandahar. Loy Kandahar became the strategic narrative. What it means is Greater Kandahar, and it's instantly recognizable to any Afghan, not not just Pashtuns, but any Afghan understands. It predates the foundation of the nation-state in 1747. This is the southern Pashtun heartland, and when Afghanistan was founded as a nation-state by Ahmed Shah Durrani in 1747, it was based originally out of Kandahar, and move to Kabul because it was a better location geographically to unify the country and to get out of the, the intrigues, the southern Pashtun intrigues of Kandahar. So the other the other Karzai brother, Khayyum Karzai, he's sort of the elder family counselor type, said, what we have to do is use Loy Kandahar to go back in order to go forward. So that was the operating principle. In other words, go back to that period pre-1978 when afghanistan enjoyed 50 years of stability and look to what, what was working then in order to move to move forward and and the rat sort of so that so with loy kandahar's rallying cry we move to unify formal and informal leaders from, from these four provinces helmand kandahar zabul urusgan with sort of fringe representatives in Ghazni and, and, and uh, Farah, where there are also Pashtun's, uh, around the themes of, um, of unifying, connecting to Kabul, rather than just Kabul sitting up here super hyper-centralized and top-down, creating a basis, a basis for political action. Um, it was sort of, in a way, it was, it was based on an aristocracy, a southern Pashtun aristocracy. Yes, it was archaic, but it was authentic. It was Afghan. Um, The purpose was to establish the basis for the legitimacy and authority of the Afghan state. That thing that is its central, the central problem of the state in Kabul is it's not, it does not perceive as having sufficient authority or legitimacy, in in large part because they're dependent on the coalition. to create that situation that Barfield described of um, uh, you know, empirical evidence on the ground based on our security activities that would convince, that, that, that made it convincing that, that the Taliban recapturing Kandahar and the Emirate was futile, um, that would lead to a political calculation that oh, the state is going to be the winner, is the definitive winner. Um, to unify leaders around that vision, um, to include tribes and clans that have been disaffected um, and to bring the, the, the traditional charismatic leaders into the formal system um, by giving them positions in the security forces and thereby subjecting them to professionalization. That was the basic program. Also had a Taliban each outreach program that was, that the, the, Afgh- it was the Afghans that came up with this. They're talking to the Taliban anyway. The big problem is these, the, this hang-up with national power-sharing negotiations up here is a total distraction. Um, the Tajiks, the Hazaras, the Uzbeks, they hate the idea of, of bringing the Taliban into the government. But the idea that they could resettle in their home areas, their places they're from, no problem. They can hang out and do whatever they want down here. The big issue was, how do you get them out of Pakistan where the, the, the Pakistani intelligence service knows where all their families are and can secure their families. So it was sort of a challenge to get, to get the families out first and then, and then make it happen. Um, okay, uh, just, to, just to wind up here. Um, proposition number eight. Political and military action must be integrated. I think I've given a little bit of a description. Um, and the way that they're integrated is that military action is in support of your political aims at all times. Again, back to basic, your basic Clausewitz. The problem is that we've reversed that pretty much the whole, the whole time through. Um, and just to close off, this, the, the Loy Kandahar came to a head um, after the assassination of the principal warlord in Uruzgan province, um, here in the north, very mountainous province, that we had alienated, by the way, although he was the man that made it possible for Karzai to survive and get uh, and, and to have a base of power in, in 2001. Um, he was blown up uh, in Kabul by the, the, the most... I mean, suicide bombing is bad enough, but turban bomber? That's just, like, chilling. Um, the, so at his memorial ceremony, we, we, ISAF, in its appropriate role of providing support to Afghan initiative, provided helicopters that flew a dozen reps the governor plus a dozen tribal leaders from all the provinces to Tarankat, the capital of, of uh, Uruzgan. And the buzz had been building up for this for a long time. The Afghans insisted that they would secure this even though they knew they would be a huge target. It ended up that thousands of people turned, turned out for this event. And at, you know, one after another Afghan got up and talked. Right, the Afghans totally, there's, there's no time schedule, there's no agenda. You know, th- They get up and talk and it's dramatic and it's emotional like only Afghans can be. And this mullah, who none of us had ever heard of, but all of them knew, when he stood in the stage, this buzz, you could just hear this buzz, went all through the crowd. Um, and he got up and he, he gave this talk, this sort of, you know, we got to hang together or we're all going to hang separately because the Taliban is killing us, um, just galvanized him into action. Um, a delegation followed that immediately to President Karzai. Kayum, Kayum, the older brother, had already gone secretly to talk to him uh, and gotten his blessing for this. A delegation went to him and said, stop calling the Taliban your brothers. They're the ones who are killing us. And he stopped. Um, We then started to lobby in in Kabul uh, to get support because that was really the key was to get get the dynamic working. And here's where the story gets sad. It all pretty much collapsed. The 10th Mountain Division rotated out. 82nd Airborne came in. Bottom line, 82nd Airborne, they did not get it. They said, yep, yep, we know what we're doing. See you later, bye. And boom, they marched in their own direction. The ISAF was not prepared. They had, you know, I have to say, frankly, General Petraeus had already been convinced by advisors around him that they had to shift the main effort out of the south and hurry up and chase the soccer ball of violence to the east. Um, And although the idea of Kandahar is still out there, never, beyond that point, it did not go. And I think that kind of ends it with the story of our experience in Afghanistan.